Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Librarians with Lattes. I'm your host, Amanda Lau, Outreach and Marketing Librarian here at the University Libraries at Albany. I am joined once more today by a library ambassador, Fiona Hernandez. She is here all the time, a regular. You guys know her. And, and for the first time, I have Deborah LaFond, another one of my wonderful colleagues, joining us here today. Welcome to you both, and how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um, I will say, I mean, you know, even just kind of stressed because towards the end of the semester, yeah. um, everything's just kind of compiling in, so stressed, but doing good. <laughs> oh, you'll get through it. We're almost, we're almost at the end, right? We are. How are you today, Deborah? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me. It's oh, thank you for to coming. Nice awesome. to meet you all. Thank you. All right. So as tradition on this show, I always ask what people are sipping on to stay hydrated. Today, I have a lovely pink drink. It's very spring since we're in spring now. What about the both of you? I gave up on green tea, actually. Oh, no. Just... It's always green tea every episode, Fiona. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's actually water now. I'm getting on water now. It's, you know, nice cold water. When the weather gets nicer, I like to have a nice... Uh, cold water with ice in it which is good now because it's warm in this room just yeah. so everybody knows that listening the podcasting room is very warm <laughs> yeah when it's like the fall and winter green tea every day but now it's water it's fair <laughs> well i'm sipping on breath and that's a very important feature in my life <laughs> i do drink coffee in the morning but <laughs> i try to remember to breathe Breathing is also very important. I also try to do that. And sometimes I find myself talking very fast and forgetting to breathe. So <laughs> also very important. Yes. Oh, well, it's uh, April and a lot goes on. We are one step closer to the end of the semester, as Fiona pointed out. It's National Poetry Month. Shakespeare's birthday is at the end of the month. And one of our topics of conversation, National Library Week. But before we get into all of that, I'll let Fiona dive in. So go ahead and take it away. Thank you, Amanda. So I'm here to introduce Deborah LaFond. She is a librarian here at the University Libraries, and her subjects include Africana Studies, Educational Psychology and Counseling, Psychology, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. And I'd like to begin by asking you if a, being a librarian was the career path that you always wanted to pursue, and if not, then what was? And if so, why? What experience led you down this path? For asking. Um, first, I have to just uh, read our land acknowledgement for the university, if I may. I don't have to read the whole thing, but just that's something we're all learning to do. And the University at Albany sits at the confluence of the Hudson and Mohawk Rivers on the traditional lands of the Kinian, Kika, and Muhanak people who stewarded this land for generations before the arrival of European colonists. The Albany community recognizes that we live and work on the homelands of sovereign indigenous nations with rich histories and cultures that continue today, both within New York and beyond. I'll just read some of that, but thank you. Um, how did I become a librarian? Wow. <laughs> um, I think I've been in libraries since 75, 6, 7, something like that. Um, I started in an architecture library, uh, but I didn't really fully realize that I was going to become a librarian until uh, I was working in Idaho at a library. And I had been doing a lot of work research. And um, I was working on Palestinian uh, Middle Eastern studies. I, my earlier life was civil rights uh, activist with my mother, who was a civil rights activist. And stopping war was kind of our theme 
you know, in those days we were trying to stop war and stand up for women's rights, indigenous rights, uh, African-American rights. So we were doing a lot of, you know, the 70s was the time we thought we were going to create a new world, a new culture. So in a sense, we were all architects of that revolution, right? And I was studying how to be a better architect <laughs> for all those years. And um, so, uh, gosh, what happened? Something happened in my family, a tragedy, and my family moved to Idaho from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we had been living until my brother was killed there. And so, yeah, no, it's part of, you know, the reality of social science world, right? Is we have to know what's going on in the world and why things. So I was, became very, you know, focused on violence and how to stop violence and what is it and how can people kill? Like, what is that? So when I moved to Boise, Idaho to be near my parents after their, this tragedy, um, I started working with a feminist scholar at Boise, Idaho uh, University, um, Boise State. And um, I guess from there, I was just doing a lot of research and working and putting myself through school as an undergrad <laughs> as a custodian. <laughs> And um, just became really, uh, worked at the state library and I was running interlibrary loan and circulation and I think I just decided I better find some kind of profession because this research isn't going to pan out. Now my year, early years were in theater and pantomime and dance. So first I'm a dancer. I became to dance through African dance first. So that was really who I was, my dance. I was a dancer. I am a dancer. And so, you know, it was like this tragedy sort of turned me into something else in a way because I became so investigating in how to stop violence. Like, you know, we didn't have grief therapy then as a psychology that we're in. That was new, you know, that became later. So you didn't learn grief therapy till much, much later. <laughs> so my intellectual idea of how to stop violence. So I went to work in a prison in Idaho to learn how to, as a librarian, I was taking books and we were doing classes, I was you know, saying to the inmates, what would you like to study? You know? And it was the Ebony Club. So I specifically chose the Ebony Club because I was aware that you know that group of people were specifically marginalized in the prison. And I knew this how because um, I met someone at the Idaho State Library and he said, we have this volunteer program. And so I said, oh really? And I was very strongly influenced by Michel Foucault as a history major in Milwaukee. And so Michel Foucault opened my mind in the 80s because I was studying history, but it was the kind of history about white men, like white yeah. men's traditional history. So even as a feminist, a young feminist, there was nothing at the university that was like opening our doors in terms of feminist theory, right? So at the time, I, Foucault blew my mind because he, he was looking at discipline and punishment, right? So the whole idea of punishment and how power, you know, how power comes from that idea of punishment and, and how, how we survey society surveillance so that we keep those systems of punishment going. So he blew my mind, right? So <laughs> that theory. And so then I became loving, a lover of studying theory right? and, and anti-colonialism and African studies. And so I was studying how to stop the war that I knew was coming in the Middle East in the early 80s, um, studying the Iran-Iraq war while I was in Idaho. And I said, you know what, I gotta go become a librarian and also become a Near Eastern Studies librarian because I have to learn Arabic. I have to, well, if I'm gonna stop this war, I gotta learn Arabic. 
I got to learn Persian. You're on top of it. <laughs> I got to be yeah. on top. So I get accepted at UC Berkeley and other places that had Near Eastern studies. So I moved to Berkeley and went to the library school. So my Idaho State Library people supported me to go to library school. And it was interesting. And of course, uh, at the time, nobody even knew about Islamic cultures and Etc. So I said, okay, I got to relate. So I studied Islamic, Islamic studies, Persian, you know, the whole thing. And so I became, you know, I was trying to become a Near Eastern Studies librarian. That was officially what I was trying to do. <laughs> but the feminists keep coming up in me, right? So I just ended up working in libraries. I got a job in the um, psychology library in Alameda, California while I was working at UC Berkeley as a librarian uh, and a library assistant. So the kind of the library thread was to help me become a scholar. I wanted to become a scholar of something and probably that would help end wars, you know, that's what I knew, and violence. And of course, mental health was also very strong in my life. Um, having a family member who, you know, learning about that and learning about mental health. And so all of these things, looking at what are the, what are the practices and systems that maintain this kind of violence and this kind of idea that we should suppress ourselves, right? Or that we should think lesser of ourselves. And as a dancer, I always know you didn't need to, you know? So in my theater school, the mime school that I went to, we studied dance, we studied mime, we studied circus techniques, we studied, we were falling off buildings. We did all kinds of things to grow our freedom right? Mm -hmm. So how is it possible that I just left that, right? Well, that I'm still answering that question. But I think for me, libraries is more about the society we're in. The library is a symptom of what, or, or actually a public trust, really, of people who give us that trust to make sure there is a space for us to grow in, right? And touch any idea we want, or touch any book, you know? This morning I was in the chiropractor's office and I picked up this book, Kill As Few Patients As Possible, and I thought, now that's an every read for librarian, right? <laughs> you know, the reference interview is really sacred, right? People come to you with their souls, with their, with their aspirations, with who they are, with who they want to be. This is not just a technical thing. You know, this is a space that's been provided by the public. They trust us to create that space. So I just thought this way. I picked up a book like you do in the library. You just pick up a book off the shelf, and it happens to be just what you need that day, right? So don't underestimate the healing power of Blarney, doctor says, about working with patients. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. But, you know, the doctors have to think, too, about how they're inter interviewing and connecting with their, with their patrons or their patients. So I think that's a big piece of how, why librarianship for me is it has that social, it has that person-to-person -person connection, and it has that supporting intellectual space, um, space in the library, mm -hmm. space to move, space to grow. So I think it's creative spaces that I'm really interested in. And mine for me was like this silence where things emerge out of silence, right? So for me, studying mime wasn't just about not speaking, although, it's also true that I didn't speak before I started doing mime, which you'll never believe, but. <laughs> <laughs> but the mime space was the space, the creative space, that space of listening, and that space of creation, and that space where we supported that, and we would sit for like maybe two hours at a table with opposite, uh, 
colleague opposite, and we would wait for something to emerge at that table. And then it, whatever came out, came out. So it's that sort of sense of improvisation that I love and I think is so important for librarianship, you know. Mm -hmm. And how do we create that inclusive space in libraries? We have to first know that we are all artists, that we are all creating, and we don't get to tell people how to grow and learn. We have to create spaces that allow that to emerge. So, hey, that's a long-winded way of answering that, but, but that <laughs> does is that a help? beautiful answer, I have to say. I mean, wow. <laughs> I will say, long you know, life. It's, it's interesting how... Older. You were a dancer, and you were studying architect, and you had a lot of social activism in your life, which kind of influenced you into being a librarian. And I, I just never looked at it that way, as how you know libraries can be this place of you know bringing ideas and social activism, and how people are passionate about you know uh, equality, gender, women's gender rights. How did social activism and everything, why does that play such a big part in, in your life as a librarian? Well, I think when you know that it is a public trust and that you know that when someone enters the library, they have to do a lot of work to get there. Yeah. <laughs> Just creating the time to come into a library you know, means that they've had to somehow make decisions about what they're going to leave, why they're carving out this space. Is this space supportive of them? Are they going to have to make it supportive for them when they come, or is it already supportive? So I think when you think about it from, like my professor Buckland at UC Berkeley always said to me, and I love his quote, uh, he said, you know, in academic librarianship, he said, 99% of the reason people come to the reference desk is because they're looking, they don't want to look stupid somewhere else. <laughs> and you can develop that further in the sense of, they want to know that there's a place where they can come, where they don't feel stupid, they don't look stupid, and that their their questions, aspirations are valued. And for me, that's sacred space. That's for me, very sacred space. So the more we try to block it off and make it look, quote, professional, I think we're losing something. I think we need to think about how we make it more artistic. There is no separation between art and life. You know, there just isn't. And in my view, I should say. But um, I think, so how we make that creative space, as Amanda's trying to do with marketing, trying. reaching out and creating space in play space. <laughs> play space is very important. You know, there are a lot of people who are don't know why, how to come to ask questions, right? And I think in the libraries, we are trying to support inquiry, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to support inquiry. But do we do it well enough is the big question, right? So that is a big question. Do we do it well enough? It's funny that you say that bring up the whole um, people being comfortable coming up and ask questions. And um, I, I often people will come up and they'll say, this sounds so stupid. I have such a stu it's such a stupid question. I'm like, back up. I'm like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Just ask your question. It's not stupid. I mean, like, there's no such thing. So just ask it. And I, I remember that because I English, my 11th grade English teacher, Dr. Sinan, would always say to me, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I've yet to see one that's... That's stupid. So, yeah, and the concept that we would be having to give permission exactly. to people to, to, you know, what does that say about the space they're walking into? We should be asking, in my view, why do people feel they have to, you know, set up their question in a way that's already criticizing themselves, right? Well, that's part of culture, right? So we need to know more about culture and how to prevent that from happening. Yeah, right? Or I'm sorry to bother you. That yeah. kind of thing is just people being uncomfortable. 
coming forth and asking questions anywhere. We're a very um, hands-off, I think, society and interaction and communication. We're so like, you know, on our phones where you don't have to talk to a person and make that connection. So we're like, it's a weird space we're in, I think, as a society. Yeah, and as a subject librarian, and as you know, when you're selecting, right, you're, you have to think about questions that aren't asked at the desk. <laughs> you have to think about books that might be used by people who are too afraid to share or ask questions or or just don't feel that this is their space yet. I mean, let's face it, you know, the walls are all white. You know, <laughs> you know there, there are lots of reasons why people, you know, don't necessarily maybe consider this a, a creative space. This is why we need students to tell us that, not tell us what we think you should think. And that's a lot of librarianship. We all think that we are the ones giving information to students, but that's not true. It's supposed to be an interactive art, really, about what is the, what should the library be? What could it be for all of us, right? And how am I gonna feel comfortable coming into your library? So one of the things, like years ago, we created the African-American quilts exhibit, right? We didn't have much money, but I went around and every time I went to a conference, I found a, a quilt poster and I had a couple of colleagues who really were great to work with and we put this on, we brought quilt scholars we brought African-American quilt scholars to the campus, and it was a very big deal, and the, 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 the uh, exhibit is still up there. But it, it is a question about how we could be doing more about creating inclusive space. You know? I do agree with that. I think that the library is a creative space, and we need more library ambassadors, yeah. because I think, I think it's a great program where I have brought some creativity into libraries with interviewing subject librarians and professors and creating social media posts and that I think is very creative. And we need more of that. We need more library ambassadors. <laughs> but I just want to say thank you to Amanda for that program. And Absolutely. I do agree with that because thank I think thank you for saying when that. people think of the library, they think of just books. And it's a place to just study and just do your work and just, you know, collaborate on projects. But it's more than that. I mean, you know, there is creative space here that I think it's important to show for our students to show that art. Um, I absolutely agree with that. So. We used to have exhibits that were requested by the students, and for 10 years I ran the exhibits thing where we, you know, we would wait until people came to us with ideas, but most of the time we had to go out and pound the pavement. But, <laughs> but, or putting up book exhibits, or putting up exhibits that students are working through their associations, or even information literacy assignments. Once I had an exhibit of folks who wrote papers on, on topics, and shared them in the you know in a, in a case like just these are student papers i will say they're coming back though i did have ah. someone approach me recently <laughs> for a communications class that did all these wonderful uh multimedia projects and we're working on setting up an exhibit uh, at the end of april so so it's slowly slowly people are starting to to come back uh, and do these things i think ambassadors also helps with that because you guys are talking uh, to folks in your different classes and your peers about different creative endeavors and stuff uh, and like you said, doing creative projects uh, with me, which is fun. And, you know, mm -hmm. we're influenced by what we've seen, too. Like, I've been fortunate to work at UC Berkeley with Phyllis Bischoff, my mentor, Africana librarian, you know. I mean, people have to know that we are here to help connect them to their next step, you know. <laughs> you know, like, we may not have it all here, but I know who does. <laughs> and I'll help you get there, you know, as a subject librarian. 
if you're interested in Africana studies and you want to make this your field, I know how to help you get there. I know librarians all over the world who would, you know, know about your topic and would maybe, you know, support you. So that's something subject librarians try to do. Um, the associations like the Africana Librarians Council that I'm part of, you know, for years. They're great people. They're all investigating, you know, sort of important topics in African studies and supporting inquiry that you might not think is so important, but frankly, it's very important, you know, and if you go to this university, you'll get funded or you'll get, you know, there's a whole collection that might support you. So, you know, kind of learning about the, the streams of, um, Support is really important, and I think sometimes students don't know enough about those streams of support and how to access access them. You know, so knowing that there are networks and associations, and teaching you that it's important to build those networks you know, while you're here, you know, just start asking and, and interviewing people like you are. It's great. Thank you. I, it's, it's funny you mention that because Jesus also said that you know he thinks of libraries as this place of, you know, as he's a librarian as well, and he is happy to help out students in any way they can with research or, you know, learning more about these certain topics. Um, so I, I just thought that was really interesting. That so we feel a strong responsibility, you know, to make sure that con the continent of Africa is represented, or not represented, but is, like, acknowledged. It's not invisible. And in our collection building, have to be also thinking about that to make sure that there's actual, you know, publications from Africans, not just from, you know, Western scholars or Western publications. So it's very important art, and that's what the Africana Librarians Council works on. We actually work, you know, there's some work being done on microfilming things that are, you know, in, in Africa that are very unique, and so we try to support some of those things. But an association is what how you do that find people who can can speak up and then you become kind of recognized as people who will be involved in these conversations right so it's slow like right now the big question about um, you know area studies is a is is struggling right now because everybody wants to talk internationalization but yeah. not so much area studies like pe people studying particular areas uh, of research and if you're studying internationally you got to prove that it links to five different countries or you know and you're kind of running across a thread of interesting ideas but maybe not deeply focused you know in a particular area so it's it's very important um, to connect with librarians so that's a resource if you asked me about resources I think students need to think about librarians as resources. I mean, we are, and we will help you, you know, hopefully we can help you get to other resources. And you can share with us resources half the time. Oh, yeah. You know a lot about what I don't know. Yeah, taking appointment, appointments with people that I have no clue what they're talking about, and I'm like, tell me more, and I'll help you find what you need. <laughs> and there's so many different formats now. You know, what is a book? You know, it's a text. Everything's a text, right? So. What do I love most? I have to say, I love documentaries because oh, yeah. documentaries helped me learn more. Like last night, they had um, Bring Her Home, a beautiful uh, documentary on indigenous women that are being murdered and how this group of women are fighting to get to lobby and did successfully lobby for you know more attention and more action on murdered indigenous women. In my view, a good librarian in my self-assessment is that you are actively engaging 
in, in learning diverse experience and learning about that lived experience. I have known since 70s <laughs> that I may not have the experience to share, but I can be a support to hearing and getting documenting those voices. I'm working on mental health issues right now. Mental health, something that's more positive. We, we use the complete mental health approach and we found the data show that actually people are doing better than it's always reported. <laughs> you know, given a certain, not all, not all areas of mental health, but in some, you know, depressive states, there is much more positive news than, than it was thought by the study we did. So things like that, you know, to kind of encourage clinical people <laughs> to not always be looking at it from the downside, but also like, here's what has supported people, even though they might be small. And for me, you know, that's a big deal. So, because it's such a long road. Well, I do want to ask you this question. How did you become a subject librarian for all of these subjects here <laughs> at UAlbany? Um, I mean, yeah. you have kind of sort of explained that a little bit with your past, but I mean, Interesting. Um, it's, it's a lot of subjects and a lot of research. And is there any other subjects that you might be interested uh -oh. in doing more research in? Um, yeah, that's the problem with becoming a librarian. <laughs> you love everything so much that you can't pick one. No, I, uh, I think um, the job announcement was all those things, you know. And it just so happened that I had been doing all those things. I did psychology in Alameda. I did African studies at UC Berkeley. I did uh, St. Mary's College. I was the psychology and history librarian. So it's like, did they write this for me? Yeah, it's like... <laughs> called me and it just so happened that my sister and my mother moved to Albany at the same time. So I said, okay, this is too bizarre. I gotta go for this interview, right? <laughs> yeah. I was like, dun, 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 right? <laughs> so I said, well, what the heck, let's check it out. You know, who wants to leave the Bay Area? But, you know, it's, how often does that happen that your family, you know, Stars happens, aligned. You know, boom, yeah. boom, you know, it just shook, like that. the world shook. So, now that doesn't mean you should always follow that. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out. It worked out. It's worked out in the in the sense that it, you get to grow um, all those areas. And for me, intersectionality we now know is the biggest thing going right in terms yeah. of how to look at any topic with intersectional lenses. You know, like how do we look at a, a at a topic from so many different levels of experience? And that's how we'll create the best potential for the next whatever wave that's going to. Get us not to kill each other, you know, back to not killing, right, is my thing. Why do we need violence? We don't. We just have to stop thinking about punishment. And it's a tricky thing because no matter how progressive you are, how feminist you are, you can still be thinking along those lines about, you know, control and punishment and power. And so the analysis of power is still really important in feminism and women's studies does that work and has transformed Many of the other disciplines through that work, and others have picked up, and you know, they're all, it's like those are the key questions now. Like, how do you train students to interview, you know, and how do you do it respectfully? How do you go into a community and, and, and respectfully interview? This is gonna be important for you as a journalist, right? How do you do that knowing that maybe you don't have this, you don't look the same as that group, right? And how, what, what do you have to do that's extra? Or can you do it? Maybe you can't. 
But all those questions have to be asked, you know, in order to further the work that's been started by really investigating, you know, how do we get to a place where we can be inclusive, respect it, respect each other, <laughs> and really, you know, grow a society that's really, you know, democratic and inclusive. I mean, it's 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 tricky, given the situation we're in with everything going on. We keep learning about inequality and inequities. We keep learning about it. And then so how do we do it in our own field, in our own professions? If I can't help create that space through the reference work I do, I'm not really doing what I think my job is. You know, I think students know when you're really connecting with them versus just performing your job. So someone told me that this is my expression, but I'm not sure. Intellectual performance art, that's what I do. But the intersectionality of all those subjects and disciplines was great for me. <laughs> and what you do is, you, when you're doing that work, you're always looking for what's intersectional. So when you're buying and you've got little budget, you have to think about how it intersects. Okay, well that's really good because it does intersect. It, it seems to have like four or five um, intersections. The authors were thinking that way, right? And what does it mean to be an author? Like, wow, you know. We have to support our students to think of themselves as the next scholars, right? Yeah, they talk about Or as scholar the scholars that are. All the time. The scholar communication team actually talked about that with a group of student advisory board members about what it means to be an author. And you're all authors. Have you written something? You're an author, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, but yeah. we have to change our thinking yeah. about what we're doing as librarians, too, in order to make that really felt, you know? Yeah. Like we can't come at students with an idea that we know something. We have to decenter power. <laughs> we all are learning how to decenter power, I guess. And the truth is, is that females in the profession don't really have that much power. <laughs> but we pretend yeah. to have the power, right? It's like this yeah. masking of, you know. Oh well, yeah, even though we it, dominate the profession. Right, right. Yeah. There, there isn't a lot of power we have in a way, except that we are privileged in being in this space, right? Yes. At a cost of keeping your mouth shut sometimes, right? So that's the trick, is like, we were invited into the academe at the cost of keeping our mouths shut in some respects, in terms of real empowerment, right? So you have to, when you know that, when you understand that, you have to weigh your life differently. So you have to think about what actions I'm doing, am I doing them because this will get me this or that, or am I doing this because it fulfills the mission that I think we should be having here? And I think every faculty member has to think about that. Speaking of faculty members, you know, another thing students might want to think about is these are going to be your lifetime mentors. You're never going to forget them. No. <laughs> All these books that I brought, you know, these are mentors that I think about every day, you know, and that's how I assess my own ability or my own work. And of course, I'd like to be doing more. But the point is, is that they keep you sound and alive and honest. You have pictures of your mentors, you put them up, <laughs> and every day, you know, you look at them and you, you remember what they taught you. Yeah. And remember Gayatri Spivak, who taught me so much. Remember Phyllis Bischoff, and you know, so David Easterbrook, who's at Northwestern Africana Library, you know. These people stay in these positions because they know that it has to be, it has to continue. And they don't know, always have what they need <laughs> to make it last or continue, but they do stay there and do whatever they can, you know, for years. And yes, they get, you know, a modest lifestyle, but um, 
at the same time, they know what they're doing. It's a very conscious choice. So it's important to think about your mentors and, and, and stay connected if you can in, a, in whatever way is possible. And I think students might want to consider their professors more as mentors for life because I have never forgotten mine, you know. So it's very helpful. I'm sure you have some that you think that way. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I look up to all my professors because, I mean, they've helped us give us great advice as, you know, how to make it into journalism. And starting now in college, doing podcasts, writing for the newspaper, you know, uh, being a part of, you know, something like clubs like Albany Student Television, which helps you with cameras and video editing, you know, I mean, you have to start off and get this kind of experience now for when in the future you go for a profession in journalism. You know, now is the time. So I, you know, I, I always admire that advice to just take advantage of a lot of these opportunities and you know, go to them for a, a help for office hours and writing stories. And now I, I feel much more confident in being able to do podcasts and writing uh, new stories and going out to interview people and ask for sources. Yeah, it's been very helpful. It's great. And I remember when I was at the architecture library, we had a, um, I was taking a course on um, Latin American, Caribbean, Mexican history. And the professor took us to Cuba. And I was working in the television station on the campus. And they asked us to go to Cuba and film Midwesterners encounter Cuba. <laughs> so that was an incredible experience. Not only was I there as a student, but I was filming. I was a filmmaker. Like I was learning these skills of a video camera, you know, how to film on site, you know, carry these big things around. And as a woman at the time, there weren't that many, you know, in the 70s. You just didn't see them. And it wasn't that easy to get a job. When I went to Idaho, I was trying to get into being a, a video camera person. I went to all the television stations. They just laughed, you know, so. It's different now, though. Yeah, I know. Good. And that's what's so great yeah. is, like, you, you see how this skill is going to, probably it's going to, it's going to match. You're going to probably get some, you know. But it took time. Like, it didn't happen. It didn't happen for everybody, you know, that way. Even though I, I had experience, you know. So I'm just saying it's important. To make those connections, definitely. And I always look at it as your mentors, too. You get to know them well enough. They become your friends for life, too. There's, you know, my undergraduate professors and some my grad school ones as well. We're friends now. Like, they're, they're my mentors. I still really look up to them for it. They're their sagely you know, advice and counsel for librarianship or the other areas that I'm into, but they're my friends. They came to my wedding. Like it's like it's a whole thing. So you develop those lifelong connections, and that's really what it is at the end. It's it's human connection that can lead you to more connections. And so it's a huge branch. It's like a tree, right? So each person you meet, you meet three more people. Like you know. Yeah, and, and it should be that way. I mean, some of these, the students that are here doing their doctoral work are here a long time. They're going to see you as a support system, whether or not you're not the professor, but you are, you know, a support system to them. And keeping that, you know, balance and those boundaries is something that is important. But, <laughs> but it doesn't mean to say you shouldn't ever make those connections. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, my professors were very much like, you know, because social media age, they're all on there, but they're like, okay, it's the moment you graduate, we're friends, we're friends for life. <laughs> or like right now, of course, there's that professional boundary that you keep, and then you become that that friend afterwards, I think. But you could really do get to know people with going office hours, and you're talking about your projects, and all these yeah, things you're doing, you know. so many times, where, I'm sure you've found this, Amanda, too, there's so many times when students aren't believed somewhere. They're not believed somewhere else, and they come, 
and they need to be believed. They need to be heard and believed somewhere. Your safe space. Yeah, they people need to know they can come somewhere. I'm not saying I'm not putting their shingle out or anything, <laughs> but but I am saying you know that there has to be some place for people to go. And I, I think we know as librarians that that happens. And, you know, we don't make a big deal of it. We don't advertise it. But I think there is that piece that they somehow, you know, when someone's working a long time, I I want them to feel like, yeah, you know. that's the whole thing about being a safe space. And I think libraries too. And I think this ties into National Library Week. You know, libraries as a place, libraries as safe space for a lot of communities. And, um, you know, I'll let you get into the, the, the history of National Library Week, but this this year's theme is connect with your library. And we've been talking, oddly enough, a lot about connection. Um, so I think this dovetails quite nicely. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yes, I, I, before I get into that, I just want to make a joke. I know I'm friends with my professor <laughs> when they allow me to call them by their first name. <laughs> Instead of saying professor or doctor, I'm like, okay, so then we're friends and they're like, you can just call me by my first name, yeah, Jane. Some people are really lax about that and they're like, yeah. It's cool. my first name, yeah. but this yeah. is a joke. <laughs> um, yes, so Library National Week, which um, starts from April 3rd. A little history about this, and this is according to the American Library Association. It started back in the mid-1950s, and research showed that Americans were spending less on books and more on radios, televisions, and musical instruments. Concerned that Americans were reading less, the American Library Association and the American Book Publishers formed a nonprofit citizens organization called the National Book Committee in 1954. The committee's goals were ambitious. They ranged from encouraging people to read in their increasing leisure time, to improving incomes and health, and developing strong and happy family life. And in 1957, the committee developed a plan for the National Library Week, based on the idea that once people were motivated to read, they would support and use libraries, with the cooperation of the American Library Association and with help from the Advertising Council, the first National Library Week was observed in 1958 with a the theme, Wake Up and Read. <laughs> so now this uh, year's theme is Connect with Your Library. And as we have mentioned, the library offers lots of opportunities to connect with media, programs, ideas, and classes in addition to books as well as research. And with the theme of Connect Your Library, the, according to the American Library Association, it says it promotes the idea that libraries are places to, connect, to get connected to technology by using broadband computers and resources. So I wanted to ask both of you, librarians, uh, what are your thoughts on this theme? And can you talk about the different ways in which you connect with the campus community through your subject librarian role? So connecting with your library, well, first of all, realizing that it is a public space and it is public trust, which means you have, you know, you should be considering your role in, in um, asking for things, asking for what it looks like, what it is, not letting it become an institution that is not participatory. So I think for me, you know, the connection part is also a realization that, you know, this, this would not be here if it weren't for that public trust. No, I mean, it really wouldn't. Yeah. We, we, we can say we're a profession, but without that public trust, you know, and, and staying true to that public trust is really should be more, more discussed and valued. But I think for, you know, also knowing about the resources, the incredible resources that are out there, 
also knowing about we need the public to come in and, and, and consider what's, what kinds of mechanisms are happening. I mean, if we're only purchasing electronic uh, packages, for example, that come you know, to us, where they're not selected by subject librarians anymore, you know, the public doesn't know that you know, librarians are sort of being pushed out in a way because companies are selecting the packages and what's in them. So there's a de huge democratic issue that, you know, like how far are we gonna go with this packaged stuff? Sure, it's helpful if you're a small library and you buy a package yeah. to support a, a small, you know, college or, but you know, how far are we gonna go? And what are the relationships to these documents and things? And I, you know, when we're looking at databases and having to analyze whether we're gonna buy them or evaluate them, you know, you know, librarians asking questions like, well, okay, you've got this database of Native Americans. Well, what is your relationship to Native Americans? Is this college, are these Native American colleges getting this free? You know, are you, you know, what is your relationship to the people you are so-called representing? And I think those are fair questions and I think they have to be asked more. So, and I think if the public asks them too, it would be great because usually we in our own worlds don't have enough power to really make as much change as we'd like, but if it comes from our patrons, <laughs> it carries much more weight. So I'm not saying you should go and critique the librarians or critique your library in the sense of just you know yelling and screaming, but, but actually consider yourself part of it because it's not really a library unless we are all part of it. And giving that public trust is wonderful, but you know it's also helpful if you're part of it so we can do it effectively. Um, and there are many people who you know are trying to recover their history and culture, right? And that's a special process that you know to reclaim your own history. You know the public needs to ask for that more. We need to hear you know what people need and what they want, and those are you know only way we're gonna change the world. What's that show, Twilight Zone? There's an old Twilight Zone episode where every book in the library is a human being. Did you ever see that one? Yes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it <laughs> inspired it, the human library concept. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. no, right. But the whole idea that, you know, that these are souls almost, like that this is, a, the, that each book is like a soul, like it's sort of how we feel about it, some of us. But, but it's also about what's not there, which souls are missing, right? And so, which, which people haven't been able to have their stories told. And so I stay with that, that there are some of us really trying to do that work. And we really do need more, more people to feel like this is part of their work too, to inform the library as best as they can. If I get a list of books that people who are working in a particular area like the Underground Railroad or something, somebody sends me a list of books, I am going to order them. You know, Somebody who knows the area, someone who's done the investigation, we want that, we need that. Right? We can't do it all. Like you said, I've got too many subjects to be expert at any of them, really. I'm only expert at liaisoning with the people who are doing that work, right? That's my expertise. I can't be an expert at all those subjects, that's just crazy. But I can be an expert at liaisoning with the people that are here doing that work, so I know what they're doing, what they need, and what you know how we can support it better. So connection, connection, <laughs> connection. Um, so help. <laughs> for me, uh, and you've probably heard me say this on on past episodes, but I look at the library as it's a place. It's a place where we congregate. It's a it's a place that's more than just our resources and services. It's a place to be, uh, and that's just my philosophy on libraries in general. Um, 
So you're making connections. It's a place to be. You're coming with friends. You're meeting new people. We have group study spaces. We have all these things for you to be and connect with others with. And the bonus of us connecting you with resources, with uh, professionals, with faculty, um, with our services. So libraries are just in and of itself connection, right? And that's just how I feel about, about libraries and our spaces. And it's funny, they, they bring up technology specifically for this connecting with technology. And I think this is something that uh, public libraries are really poised for because there's this, what we call digital divide, right? In our, in our community, especially in more rural communities, but I feel like it's an issue also in urban communities too. Um, people don't have the same access to technology. So libraries can provide that for people. And I think academic libraries do it too. We have students that don't have access to, to the same level of access as others to certain technologies. And we can provide that to them through having PCs available throughout our buildings, equipment that they can loan out, like this podcast table, uh, and a bunch of other things. So we're providing uh, access, equitable access, to technology as well. I believe, you know, like as you just mentioned with as far as technology, I mean, that is a big part of the libraries. You know, given your background, can you tell us about how you or more broadly the libraries attempt to bridge that divide? Especially during COVID, I know we've used technology so often that we relied so much on computers and everything. That was a huge learning curve for many of us, right, to, to sort of respond digitally <laughs> and think differently about how to respond digitally to questions. And, also keep your own mental sanity. There's just so many resources that aren't digitized, especially in my fields, like especially in women's studies or Africana studies. Um, there's, there are key resources that haven't been given the same urgency to digitize, right? So if you're aware that you can't give the same because it's not equal, because some things are digitized more than others, right? So you promote what you have, but always knowing that that's good that's going to change the research output there's no question you know if, if you're dealing with less information that's digitized and you know when you're thinking about the African context too the digital divide is huge and so many years ago I went to a conference on digital divide and ICT 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 was being promoted and what was not being promoted was the support for libraries in that you know it was sort of like you know, it was a, it's a moneymaker for the West to go to Africa and promote ICT, get ICT, ICT everywhere, you know. But in terms of the library contracts, there were some people who were working on that. But it, it you know, it's really, it's in the same frame of, you know, inequality exists that level too, and it's still being replicated in that way. So we also have to think about it, you know, how is inequality factoring into, into technology and digital stuff? So I think everybody's been sort of just doing what they can and using what we have, but it's certainly brought us to more awareness of what needs to be uh, more digitized and more supported. But yeah, we try to do what we have. Luckily, there are companies who are trying to focus more on bringing together some of those resources, and that's great. And they're restricted to some degree too, because it will be so expensive that what library is going to purchase it. So there's complications as a librarian for like what I know I should have versus what I can afford, right? So I think, um, so I think the repository thing is huge, though. I don't, I don't know if you know about that, but there's a big movement towards scholarly um, repositories where we have our own repository here, where faculty can put their publications, student groups can put some of their own conferences and 
And so that, you know, bringing together free resources that go internationally like that, that's pretty amazing, right? You as a journalist, that'd be a key place to research too, right? Yeah, I think, I think just in journalism too, Fiona, like um, we think of newspapers too. I know they have to make money, but a lot of it is behind a paywall. I mean, look at the recent acquisition of the, the New York Times, the digital subscriptions. That was a huge thing because it was behind a paywall for a lot of you. Yeah. So, you know, now we have this access, but it's a, I think it's a huge thing in the, the journalism world too, because where there's a lot of stuff being published behind a paywall. Absolutely. I'm happy actually I can get that now as a student for free. That's yes. why I was paying for that. And I need to read the New York Times for a lot of my classes and for some assignments. So, yes, no, it is important to this digital divide, I think, especially during the pandemic. I mean, so many people didn't have access to technology and especially we do have to move now to that digital side of putting all these things now online because we rely so much now more than ever since this pandemic on technology and connecting people online so yeah and important. we still have to think about the divide in the sense of like Ruby Belgam one of my mentor like friends and Africana librarians at UCLA she you know, and people who, because I'm in that group, I will hear more about what the African context is. So one person said in the group, like, well, if you have to decide whether to spend the money for kerosene to, to cook your food versus run the computer, it becomes a huge life decision, right? We haven't gotten to that level, most of us in this country, where we have to make that kind of decision, but that's still going on around the world. These decisions are really about economic support. And there has to be leadership be there to support learning and education. And library is really an educative space. Well, I do want to get into asking you about some library questions, and especially pertaining to you, Albany, since it's National Library Week. I want to ask you as a subject librarian, what's the best advice you can give to students? Because you've worked so much with students on these various topics and research. I think what I always tell students is, I want to know why you came here. I want to know what brought you here. And I don't even start working on their research until I hear that. Because I don't want you to leave here forgetting why you came here. <laughs> and so I really am a strong believer. I think you mentioned in your podcast about you keep a diary. And I, yeah. I'm a really strong believer in keeping a research diary and letting those questions emerge in the middle of the night or that's that term that's going to help you find stuff in the middle of the night, right? Like it's going to hit you, you know, but having some way of connecting with your own work and sticking with it and no matter what you're learning, you're adding to it, but you're not forgetting why you came here. Because usually why you came here is still very critical to your future and to your to what, you, what you'll end up doing. Don't allow censorship to, to rule your life in any way, shape, or form. You know, I mean, yes, of course, be respectful, but but don't. There are censoring processes, and you have to hold on to what you're interested in. Be open to learning things and listening to people who can share things with you. But but you know, try to remember every day, like what what is it I came here to do? You know, and a, a good example of when I was at the reference desk at UC Berkeley. There was a woman that came in every day to the library and she'd come to the reference desk and we had certain books behind the desk at the time. So it was a book on African-American history and she'd come every day to that library and say, I need that book. And she'd open it up and she would read and she'd hit the book. She'd say, okay, I think I can get through this day now. I never forgot that. <laughs> that her, her being a black woman on the campus of UC Berkeley, what a struggle it was 
that her coming to the library and opening up that passage and reading something about somebody else who made it or did it, and she just needed that. She just needed that for that day. I'll never forget that. That's probably what inspired me to keep becoming a librarian, I suppose, but you know, just to see how difficult people's lives are, and yet they still carve out spaces to grow and write and publish and create. You know, it's great, right? That's the wonderful <laughs> to, thing about being in the public, just yeah, in the public. To be you, in the midst of that yes. is like, you know, it's golden, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that is uh, good advice for students, especially like me, is just being very open to many different people of, of all backgrounds, races, religions, and just being open to that and how, you know, the library, there's so many uh, books and there's so much research where I can learn about these various topics and, you know, it's important that I go into the library and continue with just researching. Yeah, and you are a library. You know, each person is a library. You know, so don't forget that your body is a library. Don't abuse your body. You know, use your body to grow. Find a way to stay healthy and, and use your body because it's not, you know, we aren't just one thing or the other anymore, right? We now know there's all connected. There's no separation of mind and body in the sense of, you know, you need all of it. You need, you need to keep your body healthy and you need to make it, you know, thrive in your body and in your spirit and in your your intellectual growth, you know, it's it's a combination effort. And, you know, I think we always thought it was one or the other, you know, it's great. we were taught that it was kind of, you had to choose, you know, but you don't anymore. <laughs> it's an integration that, that you, you should be seeking, you know, that's, you know, that integration and you should allow yourself to, to grow in certain areas you don't know anything about. I mean, look at these Olympics people who, you know, he's on his skates and he's also a pianist and he's also going to Harvard, you know. <laughs> People have who layers. is this, right? Yeah. This is the famous skater. You know, he just yeah. won. I mean, but when you think about that, growing the mind and growing the body together, you, know, you could see him playing the piano while he's skating. You know, it was amazing. Sorry, I go off on art. No, thing. that's a really great <laughs> metaphor, though, because I feel like I see it in a lot of like uh, popular fiction. People as libraries or stories. Like, it's something that's used all the time, and it's true. Like, we all come with our different experiences. Um, and stuff like that, and you know, you someone like we use the uh, checking out humans or souls. Like, I think that's just very poignant, and it's true. I mean, like, yeah, we all come with our own experiences to share with others, and it ties back to connection. <laughs> Everything ties back yeah. around. <laughs> what you do with it has got to be something yeah. useful. Like whatever that is, it's got to be meant to be helpful in some way. If you stick with it, if you decide that you have, you don't have any use in the world, you know, that's a horrible thing. Right? I mean, nobody wants you to feel that way. Don't suffer in silence, you know. And for me, silence isn't suffering, but <laughs> silence is generative. But, but you know, people do suffer in silence, and you know, that's we don't we want them to come to the library if they feel like that. <laughs> yeah, because you can find a home somewhere. I mean, that's the, the wonderful thing about libraries too, especially. And I hear this more from people when they visit like public libraries. I think public libraries do something completely different from what academic libraries do, or are a little bit. A little bit something different than what we do, but we, we definitely do some of that stuff too. Uh, but they'll go into a public library and you'll be surrounded by all these stories and it's a form of escapism and sometimes you just need that, right? I think that's one of the wonderful reasons why we actually now have a popular reading collection because like now if you need that like that leisure moment or that escapism moment outside of the research you're doing, you can go find that story and pick it up and you know experience that little bit of escapism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I gotta do that more.
Yeah, I think it's super but, important. But super librarians important. too, we're we're involved in on the campus. I think you had asked, uh, you know, we're we're involved on the campus at many levels too. Like, a lot of librarians are in Senate. You know, we have a lot of action that we do in the University Senate. So, part of why I read the, you know, our University um, land acknowledgement was that, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, following up on the students' demand. Students were the ones that wanted us to be more active on creating a better relationship with indigenous peoples of New York, right? So as a librarian, I feel it's my responsibility, and so does Amanda, to respond to those student requests, right? It takes a lot of work, you know, to, to do that because people are very busy and they don't necessarily want to spend the time to, oh God, here comes another thing I gotta deal with, right? But in order for us to get that land acknowledgement, that took hours and hours and hours of work, communicating, connecting with people, connecting with indigenous peoples, you know, trying to bring more knowledge to, and discussion and conversation to the campus. So as a librarian, what am I doing that for? I'm on Senate, I'm a senator, but I'm, you know, this was a student demand, right? They, they wanted us to change things on the campus. So part of our job as librarians, as academic librarians, we have to be involved in service so if you're on Senate or if you're on you know those are sort of things that you have to put your time into you know and sometimes it's a lot of time but it's worth it you know it came it came we didn't have one before you know, we didn't have this thing and I'm not saying it's the most perfect one but we did do it as a process it was a process where we had to work with administrators with with students with staff with faculty you know to critique it to be opening doors to conversations that no one's had you know, it's tricky. <laughs> yeah, and anything worth doing is yeah. time and effort, so. And, and then we learned a lot about how to be more respectful because we maybe we learned we weren't as respectful as we should have been towards certain groups when, you know, or certain speakers, et cetera. So there's things, there's learning, there's mistakes. We're making mistakes, we're, we're learning from it. But hopefully, you know, there's, there's enough um, graciousness to allow us to be learning and enough will, like what we really need is more will. <laughs> <laughs> to change, but but you know we're doing it. It's slow though. Academia is very slow. We get there eventually. <laughs> we get there know, eventually. It's slow. That's it all I'm to say. I, don't I, I, won't, I won't disagree there. But we, we did get there on slow. this. You know, we did get a, a published land acknowledgement that was well discussed by scholars who know things and and individuals who care. You know, who have more knowledge about it. Right. So. But as a liaison librarian, as we as liaisons, I may not know everything, but I will find people who know and bring them together right, if I can. You know, so. so that's part of our work too, you know, which is totally unacknowledged in our <laughs> promotion stuff. That's it doesn't, but it doesn't matter because we know that we're connecting. We we did what we were supposed to do. It's that self-assessment again, and students should start creating their own self-assessment. Uh, criteria. I agree. You know, I, I, I will start doing that. <laughs> because, you know, because no one else cares, you know. It's you who looks in the mirror, you know. So you have to create your own, and I need to do more of it too. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's helpful to think about what is your self-assessment criteria, and what is your method of staying sane within all the crazy, right? And how do you support self-care, right? I mean, that's a revolution that we're even talking about self-care. Yeah, I always tell people you should have at least three reflective moments throughout your day. Three, just go in a quiet space and reflect on what's going on around you, 
um, in the moment or in moments past, but always have three reflective moments during your day. And I would add to that, make sure one of them is movement. Yes, get up and move. <laughs> we have too long, we're sitting, we sit a lot, right? So. Do some African dance, that's what, that's what cures everything. <laughs> No, I do have to dance it out. Yeah. Well, I think we have time, Fiona, for, if you have one more question for Deborah, we have that, and then we'll get into uh, one of my favorite questions of the... <laughs> oh, I sure. Um, well, I'm going to ask you actually this question, because I think this is important, but, you know, libraries often are the means for patrons to access reliable broadband, computers, and other resources in addition to books. Um, I mean, you have already shared, I guess, a story about this, but do you have an, exa an example to share with other our listeners a way that a library connected you or someone you knew to your local community, and maybe from, from your experience? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, the prison story where I was a librarian, or working in a library connected to the prison population was one. And I think um, I'm part of uh, I was part of, or board member on the Underground Railroad History Project in town. So that project um, is still going, and I was in the early stages of it, and I mostly now just am there, I just attend. But in the beginning, you know, that was really amazing to uh, discover people who were trying to grow uh, knowledge about the legacy of slavery in our town, you know, to make it a local learning about how slavery, the legacy of slavery still exists, and some of this, the, the uh, stories are still here. You know, like how do we document the stories of people who lived through the Underground Railroad, right? And it's not just about finding spaces where people hid, that's not the deal. The story of how they survived, how they held together as a community, the resilience of that, you know. Stories about how people had to move their children regularly and my mother was cooking some berries on the stove, and she was cooking her, her potions that helped uh, heal the wounds when people would come to their house and hide. And she was, I always knew that we had new people out from the Underground Railroad on the way to Canada because she was cooking this particular brew and I could smell it and I knew that meant there were people coming to our house that we're gonna have to take care of. Right? Those kinds of stories, right, are still out there. <laughs> And so that this group is documenting those stories, that's quite powerful. And that's been a very meaningful connection to the community in my life. Um, and also connects to my work as African studies and Africana studies. Uh, I think, you know, just being part of uh, the African studies, Africana studies department in some way, you know, like how to be invited in, not be invited in. I mean, there's a lot of discussion, you know, a lot of things we, one has to think about in terms of entering spaces, right? So, um, so I pretty much, you know, just wait till people come to me. We do instruction, we do support these departments and things like that. So going into these communities of research is very important, you know, to be invited is a big deal, you know. You know, why should they invite us? We're not PhD per se. I have three master's degrees, but I'm not a PhD, so you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but we can support with information and, and support of the students, and they know that we're there to support the students, and we might do a show and tell, but then we will meet them afterwards. So we do a lot of meeting afterwards. You know, students come individually, if they feel like they want to, you know, we don't pressure. 
we don't grade. <laughs> no, that's important. That's big, yeah. I, not, unless you're teaching information literacy yeah. or something like that. But we, we generally, we're not like, we're not evaluators of your life. <laughs> so that's another reason people might feel more comfortable to come talk to us. Um, but in terms of generally the community, the mental health community, I mean, I, I go to mental health uh, family groups, and that's been very powerful too. And I've made connections with literature resources, just knowing more by listening to what families are going through. Um, I, I might have a better sense of what, uh, what things to order that support interlibrary loan, because interlibrary loan is a great way for- Wonderful. You know, for people to get information from colleges, those books can go anywhere, right? So if I buy them, they might get sent to smaller places, right? So I have to think about whether I'm going to buy them in print or electronic because the rules of electronic don't always support interlibrary yeah. loan. So that's a big deal because interlibrary loan is the way that people have stayed together and supported each other in the library world, right? By sharing their materials. Yeah. So yeah. when a company says, you can't share it, you can only use it on your campus. That makes me, uh, do I really want to buy this electronic copy? Because that means that, oh, what about our uh, CDLC, people who give us money every year to support our collections so that we can, they can use them, right? So those are all aspects of access. And, and you know, that these are communities we're thinking about all the time. But, you know, sometimes we're hamstrung on how to make sure they get those resources, right? Yeah, so, it is interesting too, since we you know talked about the pandemic earlier, and it's like, well, I need to buy this digitally because like my students are on campus right now, so how do they get that? But I still wanted it available in print for these people. So it's like, what do I do? Yeah, yeah. And, and the policy is you can't buy it twice. Well, sometimes I do. Yeah. <laughs> it just depends. Like I have to make a case for it, you know. But you you don't want to do it too often because <laughs> then you get you know. Don't want to get branded with you're not accountable with your funds, you know. <laughs> yeah, so being tricky. accountable with funds is you know is a big part of our job too, you know. But there's also well, you know, I might buy an Arabic book for a scholar who's coming from an Arabic speaking country. Sorry, it's not in our collection development policy, but they're they got a Ford Foundation grant to be here, so I'm not going to buy a book in Arabic. Like, <laughs> so there's a lot of things that you sometimes are just making decisions on your own like that, but. We don't as much have conversations about that as we could, you know. And frankly, it's kind of in the collection development world. It's sort of you know, every, nobody wants to take their autonomy away, right? So it's sort of like we don't talk a lot about it because you know, you know, you need that autonomy to make decisions, right? So, so if you tell everybody what you're doing, it's kind of you know, there's some fear that. Someone's going to, you know, critique, you know, your selections, and of course that's academic freedom, academic integrity. But it wouldn't hurt us to have more conversations about what's needed and how we do that to support. Yeah, that's very that's very library work talk. <laughs> There's a lot of layers there for collection development, though. Yeah. So many different layers yeah, about really selection. Layers. And, yeah, yeah. There's a lot. And we probably have a whole entire podcast episode on, on how we go about collecting books for, uh, for especially academic libraries. It's, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot that should be discussed. And maybe we'd come up with, you know, ways to get more support, even if we did have talked about what are some of the barriers to getting to doing what we want. Yeah wouldn't be a bad discussion at all.
Yeah, no, maybe that's a conversation what are the we need to have. What are the barriers? <laughs> barriers to, to what are the barriers to creating an indigenous, more in, 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 an indigenous aware campus? Like that's what I'm planning to work on this next week is putting on a, a Senate panel on, you know, what are the barriers? Maybe if we just start with the barriers, get some data and talk about the barriers, then we can then move forward, you know. Every conversation needs to start somewhere. That's true. Very true. All right. We're going to have to uh, end the conversation here, but I do invite you back if you ever want to have more of this conversation another time. I'd love to have you back and we continue the conversation. Uh, we love having repeat guests on our podcast, so do keep that in mind. Um, one you. of the ways that we like to end our show is by asking our guests what they are reading lately, whether that be for pleasure or for research or you have something you're doing for a bit of both. Uh, so Deborah, what are what are you reading right now? Oh my gosh. Okay. Oh well, like I said, I read documentaries very much. I read documentaries. I call that reading. Um, Counts. But um, <laughs> lately, I'm kind of going through. I moved recently, so I'm reading my life in a way. I'm rereading a lot of the things that are in my bookshelf <laughs> that come out of boxes recently. And actually, this one, Valley Studio, More Than a Place, uh, my teacher, Reed Gilbert, is in hospice right now. So Aww. Barbara Lee and, and Reed Gilbert, um, this was the theater school that I went to in the early 70s. And he's still going. And we have a community of artists that is coming together around him. And so I'm reading that. And of course, my favorite, um, Radical Love, uh, Dr. Dodie Donnelly. Uh, I just uh, uncovered this out of the box. And I heard a podcast yesterday, or a webinar uh, by Loretta Ross, who referred to this term as her main theme, radical love. I and love that. That's it great. was amazing because I was like, wow, does she know Dodie? <laughs> but she was talking about, uh, you know, what, what, what it's, it's going to take for us to become less um, critical of each other. She was talking about instead of calling out, calling in. Like, here's how we call in each other to create a better movement, a bigger movement. Instead of calling out, it's still sort of that punitive punishment model, which punishment equals violence in my world. Um, and it was really beautiful that she was uh, invited by the uh, Social Welfare Department to speak as the, any one of the speakers for the famous professor there, who I'm blanking on right now. But, uh, Anyway, so she raised the term radical love, and so I think it's worth looking at. But also look at Colson Whitehead. Colson Whitehead is coming to campus, and oh really? A, yeah, so New York Writers Institute. I just read everything they bring. You know? Still in my TBR, like I have uh, his books sitting, and I still yeah. have to get to them. Or maybe this year it'll happen. Yeah, he's but... coming to campus. So yeah. whatever what people that come to campus, I mean, we we are so fortunate. So, the New York yes, Writers yes. Institute is just amazing. You know, I mean. You know, just that they continue to, to bring speakers, authors, and, you know, that should be a class, period. You know, people just go to those lectures as a class. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, but anyway, so those are a couple of things. Um, but reading life, you know, reading my life and thinking through what, you know, what matters most. And, you know, have I lived up to my own self-assessment criteria and, you know, things like that. So. But documentaries is where I really like, I think I would like to be a documentary person. I did take one class, so I'm hoping to create a documentary. 
And there's still time. <laughs> still time. Hope so. Hope so. <laughs> All right. Thank well, you, everybody. Thank you. Fiona, what have you been reading? Well, well this has been a pleasure. I was able to pick it up over spring break. I'm reading, actually, Let Me Tell You What I Mean by John Didion. Oh, nice. So I'm happy to start reading that book and at least, you know, get some time to read books for pleasure, not for a homework or anything. Which is important with spring vacation. You do things that you find pleasurable um, to take a break, right? Very important, yes. <laughs> Very important. It sounds like it totally relates to journalism. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. There you go. So it's also a little bit on the academic side to help you out. So uh, you never know where you find things that will help you uh, profession, too. Um, I've, I've been reading, I love graphic novels, and I've said this before on past episodes, but I've been reading An Embarrassment of Witches by Sophie Goldstein and Jen Jordan, and it is great because it brings in identity and sexual orientation, and which is really great in, in graphic novels, and a lot of uh, queering graphic novels is like a thing too, so we have same-sex relationships in that as well, and queer characters, and uh, it's just really lovely, and, and it's great that we see that more and more um, in that genre because it used to be a very male-dominated space too. So uh, it's very important. Um, yeah. I did uh, in our library loan it, but that's what we have in our library loan for, right? So, so again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. Uh, it's Thanks, been a pleasure. You, to all our librarians with Lattes listeners, thank you for sticking with us. As always, I'm Amanda Lau. I'll catch you next time. And if you haven't been able to get into the libraries lately, what are you waiting for? We hope to see you soon.